When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the Total Soccer Show. My name is Taylor Rockwell. We've got another USMNT-centric episode for you this week. We've also got construction workers next door. Hopefully that sound doesn't bleed through too much, but if it does, apologies. We're breaking down three players on this episode who are in the U.S. pool for now. Maybe one of them less so later on. We're also answering three USMNT-centric listener questions. Before we get to that, I should introduce my co-hosts for today. Up first, a man who I'm assuming is already preparing himself for the first leg of the CONCACAF Champions League final. It's Joe Lowry. Joe, how we feeling, my friend? I'm ready. I'm feeling confident about the Seattle Sounders that are going down to play Pumas in Mexico. Then they've got the return leg in Seattle. Marshawn Lynch had a promo video about that second leg. So, So, I mean, I'm ready. Marshawn's ready. What more do you need, Seattle? The the tiny dog is ready. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's good stuff. And that voice you just heard is good stuff. Rounding out the crew is a lifelong Unam Pumas fan uh, (laughs) who wanted to spend the entire episode discussing his beloved club. It's Graham Ruthven. Graham, I will give you a cool $5 if you could name me a single player who plays for Pumas. I can only name one because I just looked at their roster. And if you do a convincing job of guessing, as in if you just make up a name, there's a decent chance I will believe that that's a real player. Uh, I mean, I think this $5 is going to stay firmly in your pocket. I mean, I have no idea where to start, I'm afraid. CONCACAF Champions League has not made it. The broadcast rights have not made it to the UK yet. It's not really a mainstream product yet. But I do know that Pumas have decent kits, as most uh, Liga MX teams do have. So... Uh, maybe I am. Maybe I'm supporting Pumas because I like their kits in Seattle this season. Eh, I'm not I'm not sure about that kit they've got this year. <laughs> Although it does perfect. look better on uh, Marshawn Lynch. <laughs> uh, Joe, can you name any uh, Pumas players or one in particular who used to play in MLS? Yeah, I was going to say they have Sebastian Saucedo on That's their team. The they have ah. a, a few other relatively high-profile guys that we don't necessarily need to get into on this particular episode. But I do, I do think, guys that Seattle has a real chance to win this thing. I think they have a better chance than any of the MLS teams who have ever been in the final. There is the biggest quality discrepancy between the MLS side and and the Liga Meki side in this final. You know, Toronto had a really, really good team. They lose to Chivas. LAFC had a very good team. That was in the COVID Orlando sort of bubbled CCL. They had a strong team, couldn't get the job done. This team, to me, feels like even though they're kind of tanking it in MLS and not looking very good in the league, it looks like they have the ability and the talent to get this job done. Well, we shall see, but I look forward to that game. And maybe it is uh, the Seattle Sounders time. If so, I hope we get a giant statue of Marshawn Lynch at some point. Until that happens, we should talk about some other Americans in the national team pool. We've got three to be discussed. We've talked through a lot of the the big names, the obvious names. We've talked about a few on the periphery. And we're going to continue that today with a couple names that have been either in the U.S. national team previously, but not so much recently, or have yet to make an appearance and might not ever, as is the case with Jonathan Gomez, because, Joe, he is currently in camp with Mexico. Tell us about Mr. Gomez. Yeah, so Jonathan Gomez is a dual national. He's a Mexican-American. He moved from Louisville City in the USL Championship to Real Sociedad. Now he's playing with their B team, who's coached by Xabi Alonso. So that's a pretty pretty high-profile manager in the picture. As far as the youth national team setup goes, because Gomez is just 18, He's been a part of both the U.S. youth national teams and the Mexican youth national teams. So he's been involved in both of those setups. He got a U.S. men's national team cap in that December Camp Candy Cane friendly against Bosnia and Herzegovina back at the end of 2021. So he came off the bench in that game. So he has made an appearance for the U.S. and experienced that environment in in at least some ways. And then Tata Martino called him up to Mexico's friendly and the camp surrounding that friendly against Guatemala on Wednesday. That's tomorrow as we're recording on Tuesday, April 26th. 
So my, my first reaction to that was makes perfect sense, right? We've seen some of these dual nationals go and experience both sides of this. And even Greg Berhalter has encouraged players to go and experience what it's like to be involved in both of those environments. But my, my second thought after that was... As a spy. If, as a spy. As a spy. <laughs> that was not it, but it should have been. My, my second <laughs> real thought uh, was, won't he be cap-tied to Mexico if he goes and plays in that friendly because he's already played it for the U.S.? Would he not have to file some sort of switch? And, and the answer from what I've been able to dig up is no. So I don't know if anyone else out there had a similar question, but apparently because it was a friendly that he played against Bosnia and Herzegovina, that means he wasn't really tied to the U.S. in the first place. And this friendly against Guatemala isn't a competitive game either. So I just wanted to toss that in there because I was thinking about that and trying to figure that out. I don't know if anyone else cared about that at all, but all that to say, you shouldn't care about it because it doesn't seem like that's a concern. But Jonathan Gomez, young, talented teenage left back, still deciding his international future. But I think it's still interesting to analyze because whatever he picks, Taylor, he's going to be involved in CONCACAF for the next decade. I put some pretty decent money on that. Yeah, I think that's probably fair. And I think it's really fair of Greg Berhalter to say experience both and then make a decision. Because I know, speaking as a like solely a fan of the U.S. men's national team, you want to believe that these players all aspire to just play for the United States. And obviously that's not the case. But you want to believe that, like, oh, no, they all would just choose the U.S. That's their first choice. Of course, they're going to be there. And that isn't the case. I think from every dual national or every person who has dual nationality I've ever spoken to, you can identify as both and both can be equally influential in who you are. So I think in a lot of ways, it makes a ton of sense for Greg Berhalter to push players to go experience other camps. Because if you don't, if you say like, no, I need a decision right now, you're really limiting them. You're not exposing them to other opportunities. And ultimately, there's always going to be that what if, what might have been, should I have done that? And I think... If a player goes and doesn't have a great time or doesn't feel that vibe and then they come back to the camp and to the U.S. camp, that is, and feel better, feel more incorporated, whatever it might be. I think that was the case with, say, Serginho Dest or Yunus Musa. I really like that approach to let people make their own choices. And then once they have, assume that that is the choice that they are most comfortable with and then approach them as a player of the team. And if not, a player of a rival team that we will never like again. Uh, I think that's roughly how I'm seeing it, although I won't dislike Jonathan Gomez until he goes like... Like full Rafa Marquez. But until then, <laughs> he's an 18-year-old Mexican-American left back, as you said, Joe, uh, formerly of Louisville City, uh, now with Real Sociedad B. Graham, uh, what did you make of young Mr. Gomez, a player I'm assuming you haven't watched a ton of before this? I think earlier in, in the year, I can't remember why this was the case. I, we, I did watch some game tape. I think it was because he moved to Real Sostad at, at the start of this year, right, from from Louisville. So I, I think maybe when that, that move happened, because I watch a lot of La Liga I did go and kind of scope him out and and look at some of his game tape back then, and there is definitely an an exciting player there. He's a, he's an attack minded left back who, looking at his game tape, he likes to one of his best qualities is he likes to ex- exchange passes with centrally positioned teammates to get in behind opposition defenses. He's a good runner with the ball at his feet. But when I was watching those game tapes, I noticed he's very good at moving the ball quickly and he appreciates how that can open up space for him. And there was one assist for Louisville City in last year where he exchanges a quick pass with a teammate. He bursts to the byline. He kept the ball that little bit longer than you might expect, which I think showed some good game intelligence because then he runs along the byline. He beats his man and then squares it for a teammate to finish at the back post. And I think that demonstrated a lot of what Gomez offers and why there is so much excitement around him you know physicality quick passing and also the ability to produce a, a final product which for for fullbacks is some sometimes something that comes quite uh quite later on in their career that's maybe sometimes the last thing that comes but he seems to already have that and in terms of his technique he strikes the ball very cleanly his use of the ball is very good when he plays a pass it's it's normally quite nicely weighted he's very prudent with the ball you don't see him losing it all that often um he plays through balls behind the defense he's good with crosses he plays one twos in tight spaces and he took a lot of set pieces corner kicks for louisville as well i couldn't quite find if he's been taking a lot of them for real sostad b under zabi alonso but all that to say is he has a lot of the fundamentals you would look for in a modern attacking fullback um he's got good strength good balance good speed the, the that physical package that I talk about there allows him to be more proactive on the defensive side of the game than most attack-minded fullbacks. He's got good stamina. He's good at making ball recoveries and closing down opponents. I think his body positioning, if we're looking at some of his flaws, I think his body positioning could 
be refined. There are times when he gets caught on the wrong side, when his when his position ties him and, and knots a little bit, and he needs to do a better job of keeping himself slightly more nimble to make tackles and interceptions or even just to jockey opponents because sometimes he gets square a little bit too often or in a 2v2 or 3v3 he can he can kind of be given a little bit of the run around there but he's still young and as I say when you look at the the fundamentals of his game I, I think he's going to be at the in, in the professional game certainly but at a good level of the professional game for a, a long time to come. Graham, forgive me if this is a very obvious question, but I'm just curious. When you say his use of the ball is very good, is that like on the ball dribbling? Is that passing? Is that his decision making in transition or is it all of the above? It was more as it was more as passing, to be honest, okay. that, that caught the eye for me because I think with fullbacks you kind of expect them to carry the ball to a, to a certain extent, and 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 he does that as a as I say that that one assist he certainly carries the ball. He carries the ball all the way up the left side and then right away along the byline. But it was it was his passing because sometimes um, I think fullbacks now when you have. Yao Cancelo and Trent Alexander-Arnold, they are being asked to be more creative forces and I'm not saying he's anywhere close to that level, but he does feel very comfortable on the ball when I, when I was watching him and that was, that was reflected in, in some, of his, some of his numbers as well were pretty impressive. So he's not at the Yao Cancelo level yet, Joe. Uh, but if we're talking about him potentially playing for the United States, I'm assuming he's one that if he were to choose to play for the US, we're thinking is a 2026 option, less so a 2022 option. That's exactly right. And I think that's probably true with all three of the players we're talking about today. Maybe not. And we'll, we'll dive into that more in just a little bit. He's, he's raw. And Graham, I agree with pretty much everything you said about Jonathan Gomez. His work on the ball is what caught my eye the most. You certainly see that pop with Louisville City and USL. And you see glimpses of it with Real Sociedad B. The, the issue is that team is just really bad. Like, they're in the relegation places right now in in the second division in Spain. They just don't get on the front foot a whole lot. Jonathan Gomez doesn't get a chance to do his thing a whole lot, which is to go back to the Alex Mendes thing of a couple weeks ago, maybe not the worst thing, right? I think his decision-making needs a little refinement, and I think his his defensive positioning, Graham, to your point, needs a a little refinement as well. And I do think he's having chances to do that under under Alonso and at Real Sociedad B. So I I think he's a good player, but he's raw, right? And we see that on on the footage for Real Sociedad B, so I think it does make sense, Taylor, to get back to your initial question, for him to be a post-2022 option. I don't think it's realistic that he finds his way into the pool right now with how young and how raw he is. Is he a, a worse player than George Bellow or than Sam Vines at this point? I I doubt it, but I don't think there's enough between those players at the moment to make up the, the ground that Gomez needs to cover to jump over them to then be behind Jedi Robinson in that left-back depth chart. So I, I think it's unlikely he makes his way into the picture before this World Cup, but I, I certainly think there's a window for him in both the U.S. and Mexico to make that decision and, and be a real part of those teams for the next cycle. And and I also think there's scope for him to to make that jump up to the, the Real Sociedad senior squad relatively quickly, even if he is struggling at the moment. Real don't have great defensive depth, particularly in the fullback areas. I mean, Nacho Monreal is still getting games for, for, for Real Sociedad. So wow. when, when Xabi Alonso does make that step up, it's an open secret in Spain. He's going to be the next Real Sociedad manager, despite the fact that maybe he's struggling slightly in the Segunda Division right now. Maybe Jonathan Gomez is one of the players he takes with him up into that senior ranks. And as you say, Joe, behind Anthony Robinson and Sergino Dest as the right back, there's really not much to divide the options that the USMNT have in those fullback positions. I'm going to call it the glob. It's what I'm going to call that uh, that group of about eight like it. fullbacks, which is just kind of congealed into one group. And I think Jonathan Gomez could be in that glob and uh, could maybe rise to the top. And I think the thing that I'm hearing a lot of is positivity, but conditional statements. He could, he might, he should, we'll see what happens. And and I think all of that uh, goes to Joe's point that he is more of a 2026 player. And if he decides to play for Mexico after this camp, then obviously that's his choice. But I also am not going to feel the same level of loss that I would have for Serginho Dest or Yunus Musa because we just, we don't know yet. And I think that's what I kept going back to when watching Jonathan Gomez. Graham, to your point, when he's with Louisville, there is this willingness to go at players, to take people on, and to just kind of roll the dice, I think, because he's a big fish in a relatively small pond. With Sociedad B, I saw less of that. And I, Joe, I think you're absolutely right to point out that maybe it's their 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 poor form uh, in the table means he is less adventurous. And so I saw him 
staying back a bit more, at times carrying the ball forward, certainly, but it seemed like he was much more inclined to be a little bit deeper. Of the two fullbacks, he tended to stay back uh, more so than his opposite member, who was maybe usually 20 yards further up the pitch than him. And so I do wonder if maybe there's an element of he's being asked to do that more defensive job because that's what they need right now. And maybe as time goes on, as he's able to move up into the senior team, we will see him develop into an even more modern fullback. But since he's not right there yet, it's not as though the U.S. should be calling him in to make sure he's he's stuck with the team or he's in there, I think, until we know more about him. So I think I'm okay regardless of what happens, although I do see a lot of, of talent there, a lot of potential there. Graham, do you feel like that would be a, a big miss if, if he were to declare for the United, or for Mexico over the United States? Um, it, it depends what you what constitutes a big miss, I guess. I think I think it would be a miss, you know, because he has got a lot of potential, but it doesn't it doesn't feel like, as you say, he's not a, he's not a Dest or a Musa, um, and the US is pretty well served in his position. I mean, everyone seems to be fairly happy with Jedi Robinson and at the left at left back for for the World Cup. And as I say, there's there's options behind him. Uh, you know, George Bellow and so on, Sam Vines. But um, yeah, there is still a bit of me that just goes, cap tie him, just give him a cap. And then <laughs> he's, he's secured. You know, if, if, if uh, you need him further down the line, then he's yours if you, if you need him. But I understand why Berhalter, you need to treat these, pe- these, these players like people. And particularly when it's something as, as fundamental to someone's identity as their, as their nationality, you can't really railroad them into a decision. So it's, it's fair to let him experience both, both camps and come to a de- decision when he's ready. The last thing I have on on Gomez here, Taylor, is I'm just wondering about the general trends that we're seeing in the U.S. and Mexico dual national conversation, I guess, is is the best way I can phrase that. So Efra Alvarez goes and decides that he wants to play for Mexico, and I think that was always expected from him. But he had an opportunity in, in both arenas. And then you've got Julian Araujo, who goes to play for Mexico after getting if not multiple caps, at least one cap for the U.S. men's national team. David Ochoa goes to play for Mexico after experiencing the youth uh, setup for the U.S. And, and certainly playing with the U23s and being involved with the U.S. senior team during the the summer this past year in 2021. Ricardo Pepe chooses the U.S. over Mexico, a, a player who's eligible to play for both sides. I just wonder in a macro way, and this isn't to, to point fingers at any particular player or anything like this, I just wonder what the numbers are going to turn out to be, right? I think I've heard people speculate that maybe for every 10 Mexican-American dual nationals that Mexico ends up having play for them, the U.S. might get one. And I'm curious to see what those numbers look like over the next five or 10 years. I mean, Jonathan, Jonathan Gonzalez, excuse me, to go back a few years ago, is another player who decided not to play for the U.S. And I think he could have been an impactful player for the U.S. at that time, maybe less so now. So there's no, there's no point here, but I just am... I'm curious personally to see how the tides are flowing and which direction they're flowing. Of course, each situation is individual and it should be. And I'm not saying that there's any nearly any groupthink or anything like that here. But I'm just curious to see what happens with, with Jonathan Gomez, certainly, but also maybe with this entire pool of players and, and if there's any trends that we notice through those players. If, if you're a young player at the moment, surely the U.S. is a better environment for you than... Mexico with their aging. I can just imagine turning up to me- the Mexican camp as an eighteen-year-old, and Guillermo Ochoa is doing the towel snap thing at, at you in the in the dressing room, in the locker room, and just thinking, "Oh, I wish I was. I wish I was with the US and Tim Weah and uh, all, all those guys seem a, a bit cooler." Andres Guardado and uh, Ache Ache are talking about like the early two thousands, and no one has any idea what they're talking about. Yeah, I see what you're talking about, Graham. All right, yeah, don't don't go to the 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 old timers club. Listen to their mini discs. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Exactly, exactly, exactly. What are these compact discs that you want me to listen? No, thank you. No, thank you. Uh, all right. Well, I think we've somehow discussed Jonathan Gomez in a number of different ways. Let's take a break and then let's talk about two more uh, players in the U.S. pool. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day, or night. Yep, you heard that right. 
you can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Welcome back to the Total Soccer Show. We've talked Jonathan Gomez in a number of different ways. Let's talk about two more players in the pool. Graham Ruthven, let's start with Matthew Hoppy, 21-year-old attacker who theoretically plays for Mallorca in <laughs> La Liga, but doesn't necessarily play for them all that often. No, he hasn't had much game time since moving to Real Mallorca from uh, Schalke last season. Of course, he burst onto the scene for Schalke last season with a a hat-trick not long after his Bundesliga debut. He makes his debut in November last season. I think the hat-trick is in in January, and he he becomes the first American to score a hat-trick in the Bundesliga. He follows that up with a handful of uh, more goals for a struggling Schalke team. And at that that point, there was a lot of excitement around Hoppy. We should mention that he he has a forward... Uh, and from there, he makes the, the switch to Real Mallorca, who had just been promoted to La Liga. I think the expectation was he would be a, an important player for them in La Liga this season. And due to injury at the start of the season, he doesn't really get an opportunity. And then even after injury, he, um, he's been a peripheral figure. Um, Real Mallorca have... They have uh, favoured a more orthodox, sorry, number nine to lead the line. And then on the right wing, which is maybe where Hoppy could fit in, they have uh, Taki Kubo on loan from Real Madrid. So he hasn't had much opportunity to show what he can do. And it already feels like he he has to move on from Mallorca. Keep in mind, it was a permanent move to Mallorca, not a, a loan move from Schalke. So he is tied to that club. So even if it is a loan move, I think he needs to get out and get some game time. He's been linked with Atlanta United recently. Maybe he plays as a number nine for them. Maybe he's a good fit. But um, yeah, he's he's a he's a he's a player that I find very interesting. I have to say, I think when you're assessing him and the sort of player he is, the first thing you, you have to mention is his natural pace and the advantage that that gives him as, as a forward. Um, he's commonly an option for teammate, teammates to find in behind a high defensive line and he's generally quite good at timing his runs to get on the end of passes. And if you can get Hoppy into a foot race, there is a good chance that he's going to win it and find himself in a, in a dangerous position. And if you look at the goals he's, he scored for Schalke last season, he scored six in the Bundesliga last season. And all of those goals were in the second half of last season as well. So he was in decent form. They are from those sort of opportunities where he gets released in behind. And one thing I've noticed about him is when things are going well, he is he's very good. You look at some of the finishes for Schalke last season, and they're not they're not not always. What I'm trying to say, there's a bit of variety to his finishing. You know, sometimes he'll round the goalkeeper, sometimes they're from a tight angle, sometimes he takes them early. So he's a streaky player, he's a confidence player. When when things are going well, they're going very well. Recently, things have been going badly, and when I was watching some of his game tapes, some of his, some of his decision making has been pretty poor. He has been played out of the white on the wing at times from Yorker this season, which I don't think he's quite as effective there as when he was playing as a number nine for Schalke. But he's still young, and I think there's still a lot to be excited about with Matthew Hoppy. I think his next move is going to be very important. He needs to play at a, a club that's going to play to his strengths, and I don't get the sense Mallorca is that team right now. And Graham, to really like further exemplify what you're talking about, uh, with the software we use, we can pull individual clips or watch individual clips of players based on whatever search parameters. And I usually will do a custom search for players looking for, if you're Matthew Hoppy, an attacker, I'm looking for... Goals scored, assists, uh, key passes, smart passes, uh, 1v1 take-ons, ball recoveries. When I put all that in and looked for the last five games, there were zero results because he's not doing a ton of those things. So when you go then and watch what he is doing, I think you hit the nail on the head, Graham, that he does strike me as a, a streaky confidence player, and when he doesn't have that... He's not doing nearly as much. The the one that stood out for me, uh, there's a moment in the 69th minute versus Rayo Vallecano. He fo- he does apply some pressure. He forces a risky pass from Vallecano that's a turnover, and because of where the ball is turned over, uh, it's it's won by a, a Mallorca center back. It's played forward, and now there's a 2v2 situation with Matthew Hoppe. Uh, the ball is played into him, and he tries to do a sort of one-time lateral pass uh, to Franco Russo on the left, on his left, and then kind of spin in behind and make the run. But that one-time pass is played behind Russo. Uh, Viacano are able to catch up and then set up their defensive lines, and the move breaks down. And that is the type of sequence that I think if he's in form, if he's scored a couple goals, if he's feeling it, I think he plays that pass. It's a quick combination, and away they go. And so I, I end up thinking that this move made sense to me at the time. It's a promoted team. They're going to need uh, exciting attackers, and he's going to get an opportunity to shine. And I think 
Maybe it was wrong place, wrong time, or wrong situation with the injury. But overall, it doesn't feel like one that is going to significantly turn around. He's only played 72 minutes so far in 2022. All uh, of those coming in substitute appearances, three of them, I think, throughout this year. So, Joe, where are you on Matthew Hoppy as we discuss him uh, with everything that we've already said? I'm down on Matthew Hoppy's current situation. I am, quote, the jury's still out, unquote, on Matthew Hoppy's general situation. I think he's a really talented player. I love, Graham, how you highlighted he loves to run in behind. And that's a huge part of his game. Clearly, it's something that's been asked of him by the coaching staff. It's happening so much. But it's also something he's good at, right? He does have speed. He, He knows when to run. I think some of his runs turn in to these sort of aimless, purposeless forward runs, but I'm not sure if that's his fault or if that's just Mallorca's fault because they're not a good team. I I don't know exactly what the issue is there, but Matthew Oppie, I think, has a ton of talent, and we saw that with the U.S. at the Gold Cup this past summer. He wasn't perfect, and he was doing way too much out there at times playing on the wing, but he can do that stuff. He can be very dangerous in wide areas. He can also be an option as a a part of a dual striker pairing or or as a single striker if you can fit the rest of the pieces around him and use him in a a more realistic way. My my concern with Matthew Hoppe right now is this situation feels a whole lot like Josh Sargent at Norwich, doesn't it? Like, obviously, Josh Sargent is playing, but I think you'd be hard-pressed to find moments this season for Mallorca that have really helped Matthew Hoppe build up the most valuable skill that any player can have, and that's goal scoring. And he should be scoring some goals as a forward, right? As a, a number nine or, or whatever you want to call his position, because it's not set right now. I, I do think he needs to be getting more reps at those things. Yes, it's valuable to learn how to defend and learn how to play in a four-four-two and when to press and how to press. That stuff is good, and I'm sure he is learning some of those things, despite how difficult the season has been. But he's not getting meaningful attacking reps. He's making his runs in behind, and he's not getting on the ball. He's not having a chance to make any purposeful runs in the box. He might run outside the box, but he's really not getting into those spaces. So between this time at Mallorca and his time with Schalke at the senior team, let's not forget, they were horrible, right? I mean, Matthew Hoppe was playing because they were desperate, right? He was wearing number 40-something because he came from the reserve team and up through that academy. He wasn't really a part of that team, but he came on and he scored some good goals and, and really made a name for himself and then translated that into a U.S. men's national team appearance. He hasn't really had a chance to play in a stable club environment. He's only ever played just about 1,800 minutes in his pro career so far. It feels like he's been around for a lot longer than that, but that's not even a full season. That's like half a season of professional minutes if you're an every-game starter, which clearly he is not. I, I don't know what's next for Matthew Hoppy. I don't know exactly what should be next for Matthew Hoppy. Maybe that's Atlanta. Maybe it's not. There would certainly be a bit more stability there, but I'm not sure that's even like the most stable place to be right now. I don't know what's next for him. Maybe it's another season in Mallorca, but this has not been, and I'm sure Matthew Hoppy would, would tell you the same thing, a terribly productive or what seems like a good experience for him over the last eight months since the summer. If you look at his game time this season, there's just no way that he's been able to build any consistency. No, and that's why when I was not. I was looking at when I was looking at his game tape, I kept going back to Schalke because that was where he he was getting that consistency and getting that game time. And I'm just looking through his minutes right now for Real Mallorca this season. So he ha- he gets 30 minutes in uh, September, another 60 minutes in September where he actually gets an assist away to Real Madrid. His next game is on the 8th of January where he gets 16 minutes. He then gets 7 minutes on the 15th of January. Then a month later, he gets 33 minutes on the 2nd of February. Then another full month later, he gets 23 minutes in March, and he hasn't featured since then. How on earth is he able to build up any consistency? So that's, I do have some sympathy for him. Obviously, he's not doing it on the training pitch in Real Mallorca. I don't feel he has much to offer. But that's why I say he just needs to get out of that that situation as quickly as possible. Because when he moved from Schalke, I think we all thought, okay, Matthew Hoppe is going to get some regular game time here. And it's been the, the complete opposite scenario where he's just not getting a look at all. And that's where I'm assuming, Joe, when we talked about players that, like we're talking about 2026 versus 2022 that you initially said all three and then you were like well well, maybe one and I'm assuming that one is Matthew Hoppe uh we'll find out with our final player but if it were Matthew Hoppe I think the situation is that he he does need uh to move even if Mallorca go down we we don't know kind of what his status is going to be or how much he's going to fit in and I think if you're looking at a player who could potentially be in that squad because of the lack of number nine options or the clear attacking options or if there's some injuries you never know 
I would like him to move to a club where basically we know he's going to play and we know they're not going to be in a relegation fight. If he goes to a team in the Premier League who are in a relegation scrap, a la Norwich, I don't know if that's going to be the best idea for him. I don't know if he needs to go to uh, a, a team in even like the the Bundesliga or something like that or Maybe even the like the Eredivisie. I don't need, know if he needs to go to PSV or Ajax because I doubt he's playing he for can't. either one of those teams. Yeah. yeah. So it, it's more to me a club like maybe Vitesse or even like AZ who are in the European places right now. They're not going to be in the relegation battle, but maybe that's a place where he is good enough to find some minutes to start as a substitute, but then occasionally get some subs and kind of prove himself. Graham, my question for you is... If you were to go to a Scottish club, what do you think is the appropriate level for him? Like, I, I, I had Celtic on my list, but I'm not sure he's, no. he's at that level at this point. I don't think I don't think he gets many minutes for Celtic or Rangers, to be honest. I think for for Hibs, they need a replacement for Martin Boyle, and Chris Mueller just hasn't done the job for Hibs since he's joined. So maybe Matthew Hoppy comes in and and does that job. Hibs would actually be a decent uh, shout, and Roy Keane's going to be their next manager. So if we need to toughen up oh, Matthew boy. Hoppy, <laughs> then Hibs is maybe the place to to send them. When you were talking there, if we could somehow oh, get man. Matthew Hoppy to Sassuolo in Italy, who play a, like the most lightning quick transition game game in all of European football and he's not going to be a first team starter for Sassuolo but if he's coming off the bench for the final 30 minutes um, then I think but with Berardi that, that that could be a decent fit but even then I think Sassuolo are maybe a slightly higher level than Hoppy is playing at right now so I would say in Scotland Hibs are my suggestion. And didn't Joe, didn't Hoppy have like a bit of a clash with Burhalter? Uh maybe it was during the Gold Cup where he was like doing too much and maybe they got into it when he was subbed off. I feel like a shirt was yeah. made about this. Yes. Mm-hmm. So now I'm thinking, like, maybe that is what he needs. Maybe he goes to Hibbs under Roy Keane and he learns to channel that intensity, that that pure hatred into uh usable soccer abilities. So yeah, okay, let's let's get him to Hibbs. Let's have him under the tutelage of Roy Keane. He embraces the physicality. Uh and then he goes to Sasswallow and becomes their starting striker. And blends those things into uh, a World Cup winning <laughs> caliber player. I think we, we all good with that. Uh, Hibbs yep. under Roy Keane, then Sassuolo, then wins World Cup. Correct. And but when he leaves Hibbs under Roy Keane, you'll have lots of tattoos and yep. a big scary dog. Okay, is my perfect. prediction. Perfect, perfect. Uh, Joe, it occurred to me as I was talking about Hoppy being a player potentially in the 2022 squad, you may have very, mo- very well meant our final player Aha! that we're going to be discussing. Is that, <laughs> is that where you were? Was it Eric Williamson? Yeah, I don't think Matthew Hoppy's sniffing that World Cup right. squad. He's in a really tough situation. I don't. I agree with Graham. I don't think he's going to make a move to a club nearly as high profile as Celtic or Rangers or PSV or Ajax or maybe even teams in the Europa League places in the Netherlands. I think... He's in a tough spot right now. It's going to take a club that's willing to, to make and take a gamble and, and be willing to accept a risk to take on Matthew Hoppy right now if he does leave Mallorca. It's a, it's a tough situation. But yes, I was talking about Eric Williamson, Taylor Rockwell. Yeah. Uh, is back. Re- recovered from his long-term injury layoff. Is now starting to get minutes. Uh, and I had a hard time knowing quite how back to full fitness he is because you go back and watch him with Portland when he is uh, fully the man in that midfield, and he looks slightly different than he does at present. I'm assuming that will change. But Joe, tell us about Eric Williamson. Yeah, he's not back to full fitness yet. He tore his ACL last August. That was just after the Gold Cup final that he started against Mexico um, in in that stretch. So he looked like at that point that his stock was rising a bit in the USMNT pool. And then, of course, you have the injury, and he's out until just a few weeks ago. He's now getting closer to 90 minutes fit with Portland, but he's not there yet. Three sub-appearances and one start in MLS this season. That start came against RSL on Saturday in a nil-nil draw, and he didn't go the full 90 in that game. So we're seeing Eric Williamson slowly progress and get back to full fitness and get back to form, and we're already seeing some of the things that he is really, really good at. He is a phenomenal dribbler and, and ball progressor when the ball is on the ground. Like, maybe... The, the best central midfielder dribbler in all of Major League Soccer. He's similar to give a current and, and real USMT mainstay similarity. He's a lot like Yunus Musa in that way. He's not the same build, and they do it a little differently, but if I'm trying to give a quick comparison, Yunus Musa is the guy. They're both ball, ball progressors when it's on the ground, and they both don't really love to pass the ball all that much. Yunus Musa would rather take the ball from point A to point B with the ball at his foot, or at least it seems to me. And Eric Williamson's probably the same way. His passing is okay, and he, and he can certainly ping the ball around when he's not under pressure. Every pro player can do that. 
but under pressure, he's he's kind of just fine with the ball at his feet. He's he's not the best distributor in those kinds of situations, and he's not crazy fast. He doesn't get a ton of pressure to the ball, and this is something that I've talked about with Georgie Mihailovic. This is something I talked about, or at least thought about and talked about with other folks. Maybe it's on this show or not. I can't remember. But with Keaton Parks as well, who is a phenomenal player and similar to Eric Williamson in a lot of ways, they're they're really technical and skilled on the ball, but they're not they're not really great pressers in central midfield. And so my my question with Eric Williamson and why I, I don't know if he'll make it to the World Cup, and I, I certainly think he's on the outside looking in. But even if he hadn't had that ACL tear back in August, I don't know if he makes Baralter's roster because he doesn't move like Baralter's central midfielders move. He doesn't run. He doesn't do that that same aggressive pressing that we've seen Baralter so consciously shift towards with the national team. He doesn't have the same athletic profile as Weston McKinney or Yunus Musa, even as Luca De La Torre, who is, is certainly not the same build as those other eights. But man, he buzzes around the field and he covers a ton of ground. He does that at club level, and we certainly see him do that with the national team as well. So I love watching Eric Williamson. I think he's a great player, and I think he makes the Portland Timbers a much better team when he's fit and when he's on the field. And I, I think there maybe should be room for a player like him or like Keaton Parks or like Georgie in a deeper midfield spot somewhere in the national team. But I'm not really sure if that's going to happen or not. So that's my, my Eric Williamson scouting report and kind of his prognosis with the national team. Really skillful player, but I don't know what his next eight months looks like before and after the World Cup. Joe, uh, talking about before his injury, uh, how much physicality do you see in his game? Because watching him, especially in that Gold Cup, which I did forget that he started, uh, so to watch him start that Gold Cup final and see him really go in on some tackles, he gets whistled pretty early, uh, and I would say somewhat often, but he's, he's going in hard, he's winning the ball, and if he's not winning the ball, he's making sure to at least get a little bit of the man to stop the play or to just disrupt what's happening. And that stood out to me as a thing where he is, as you said, Good enough on the ball. I, I agree with you. I think when under pressure, he makes uh, either interesting decisions or wrong decisions when it comes to carrying the ball forward or trying to find those passes when he has the time less so. But the physical side of his game, what do you make of that, uh, again, pre-injury? I don't think of it all that highly, to be totally honest, okay. Taylor. I think he was aggressive in that Gold Cup final, and that's a good point by you. But he also, in that Gold Cup final and in the Gold Cup in general, was overrunning players, right? He would He would go out to press them, and you could see the technique just wasn't there. Maybe he was over-amped for that occasion. I don't know what it was. But I, th- I think with Eric Williamson, you don't see a lot of those really well-drilled pressing instincts, partially because Portland just don't do that stuff. And I know he's 24, and he's had a few other stops in his career already. Spent a little bit of time in Europe, and he, he played some in, uh, in, uh, in Maryland in college. He's done a few different things now, but he doesn't get those reps regularly. I think that hurts him at a club level. He doesn't get to do that kind of stuff. And he's not, he's just not the most athletic guy. He's not all that fast. His top speed is, is like, I think bottom third in MLS percentile wise. So I I don't think he brings a ton of upside defensively. He can certainly come in and win the ball if, if you're right next to him and he can body through you that way. But in terms of running and closing down the ball, I don't think that's one of his strengths. And final question for you, Joe, about Eric Williamson. Uh, just to pour salt into my own wound, I'm assuming he is a midfielder that would make DC United better. Is that fair to say? I, I think so. DC United have a lot of room for improvement. Taxi Fantas yeah. just came in and, and did some good stuff for them as a more creative, more advanced attacking player. But Eric Williamson's so good that I think he makes pretty much every team in MLS yeah. better. He has a very specific skill set, and he's really good at those things. And he's good at things that just a lot of other central midfielders in MLS aren't good at. So yeah, I think if DC United won him back and they did have either his rights or yeah, I don't know did. what MLS mechanism it was at this point, but I think certainly they would Nobody be okay does. with having Eric Williamson back. Yeah, you're right. Greg. He was in their academy. Uh, there you go. He was in their, the DC United academy, and then they... Lost him, chose to trade him to Portland. He goes to Santa Clara in Portugal for some time, and then he's with Portland, and now he is with Portland, and D.C. United are where they are. Graham, Eric Williamson is a player I'm guessing you were not quite as familiar with before you got involved with the Total Soccer Show. Uh, How familiar are you with him now, and what do you make of him? So Eric Williamson is a player, before he got injured, I remember watching quite a bit in, in MLS, from a, a USMNT perspective, I can't say that I've... I think I watched the Gold Cup final last year. Um, I didn't catch a lot of the Gold Cup last year. Again, not on British TVs all that often, the Gold Cup. This feels personal at this point. <laughs> yeah. right? It just feels personal. Yeah, I mean, someone needs to pick up those rights purely for me. Uh, I'm I'm willing to pay the... 
I was going to say I'm willing to pay the thousands of pounds a month, but I'm actually not at all. Uh, no, I'm not. Yep. I'll just continue with Good my pivot. dodgy stream watching these games. Um, but Eric Williamson, uh, I pretty much echo a lot of what Joe said. I had dribbling down as one of his best qualities. His interception numbers are, are pretty decent. I think he's pretty proactive at recognising danger. He's in the 99th percentile for interceptions per 90 minutes over the last year, 78th percentile for combined tackles and, and interceptions. I also had Joe, Joe recognised this by saying his under pressure, he's fine. For me, watching him on the game tape and some of his numbers as well, I actually, I actually have him slightly worse than, than, than fine. He's in the, the fifth percentile for passes under pressure, which isn't really great at all. I don't think he's terribly pressure resistant from what I saw in the game tape and the numbers back that up. But I think he's pretty useful in a, in a quick transition game where there's space on both sides of the ball for him to break up opposition moves and then start them going forward, whether that's with a, a dribble or I know he's not a, a pass master per se, but he does have uh, pretty decent numbers for he's in for uh, passes into the, the penalty areas in the 72nd percentile for that. So he does offer something in that regard as well. And I, I think in congested games where the majority of the play is in the centre of the pitch, though, and there's two or three players around him, he can sometimes be crowded out and lack a little bit of composure. And maybe even some technical ability at times he can be lacking in that regard. But I am uh, nitpicking slightly here because I think he's a, a very good player, certainly for that Portland Timbers team, and he deserves to be on the radar for the USMNT. And Joe, if he is on the radar for the USMNT, what needs to happen for him to move further up the depth chart, do you think? I think his passing needs to improve a little bit, but but really I think proving that he can close down the ball and be more aggressive is the thing, if there is anything, and I kind of doubt that there is, going back to what I said earlier, if there is something that can get him into that Qatar roster, it's him being really aggressive and energetic and athletic in that midfield, and that just might not be in his bag, Taylor Rockwell. Well, there we are. All right, so that's three players scouted more or less. We'll see how they continue to develop, and if they do, we will talk about them again. But right now, we will take a break and be back to answer three USMNT-centric listener questions. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Today's episode is brought to you by our old friends, Mac Weldon. Wouldn't it be nice if we could have things both ways, like a zero-calorie cheeseburger, internet ads in March that weren't just reminders to do your taxes, a dog that never needs walking after midnight when it's cold, a Manchester United that is consistently good instead of their current scattershot approach, well, we tend to think of clothing as an either-or situation as well. People think looking sharp means starchy Oxfords and stiff chinos rather than effortless comfort. But it's possible to have it both ways. Mack Weldon makes timeless apparel with modern performance fabrics for guys who want to look and feel sharp without sacrificing comfort. From their light-as-air underwear to innovative anti-odor tees and versatile yet comfortable pants, Mack Weldon has a full range of clothes that never go out of style. I got a few things recently, including a long-sleeve polo, which I love, uh, maybe the most comfortable t-shirt, which I also love, and my new favorite sweatpants, the Ace sweatpant. It's exactly what I described above, comfort and versatile, but still stylish. It's the type of sweatpant I can wear to pick up my kids from daycare and not think, I'm now wearing sweatpants in public. The other parents will judge me. Now I just think, judge away, nerds, because you will never be this comfortable unless you're also wearing a pair, in which case, high five. Mack Weldon is not flashy. It's just classic, always in style, and made from the world's most comfortable performance materials. They're designed to fit both your style and the demands of modern life. So get timeless looks with modern comfort from Mack Weldon. Go to MacWeldon.com and get 20% off your first order with promo code TSS. That's M-A-C-K-W-E-L-D-O-N.com, promo code TSS to get 20% off your first order. Thank you to Mack Weldon for sponsoring today's episode. Welcome back to the final segment of today's episode. Folks, we've got three questions. The first comes from Guy Yedweb. Uh, Joe, I'm coming to you for this one. Are there any American players who were who we were hyped about since the Klinsman era who dropped off the radar, but whom you think could still make an impact before their careers are done? That would be your Heinemans, your Andrew Carltons, nope, uh, or your Gideon Zellalems. Yeah, I mean, uh, Gideon Zellalem is, is one really, for me, that I was extremely confident in or at least at least let me let me back up at least really enjoyed watching and that extends even to when he moved back and was playing in usl and then it's still on nycfc's roster i wrote 
even a bit for the athletic about how he should be something that people were, were watching for in MLS that year. And that didn't age all that well and still hasn't. So <laughs> Zalalem is someone who I think could still maybe make an impact in the right situation. But that one kind of seems like the ship has sailed a little bit Rangers there. Rangers ruined them. Yeah, yeah. Blame Scotland. I think that's what Ryan does with everything. So I'm going to do it here, <laughs> he too. Emerson Hindman. And, and I do have my own suggestions, but I want to credit Guy because I think these are really good ones. Rangers ruined him, too. Emerson Hindman <laughs> is one who I think can fight through the Rangers curse. He's actually a guy who I think can still make an impact at club level. At the very least, he's just recently back from an ACL tear. Made a couple of sub-appearances this year with Atlanta. A very well-rounded central midfielder. A number eight who can do a whole bunch of different stuff. I don't know if he has a national team ceiling at this point. But I think he can be an extremely productive MLS player. And could maybe, if he wants to, go back to Europe at some point in his career. So, Guy, I think that's a, a great shout from you. Two of mine, and these aren't Klinsman-era players. They're, they're after that. But I think we have that whole timeline to work with. Ulianis. Taylor, 21 years old, still very, very young, playing for St. Poulton in Austria's second tier at this point, was without a club for a while, played in the Galaxy Youth Academy and moved to Wolfsburg and played a little bit in their system and then has kind of been in no man's land for a while. He has three caps, the most recent of which was in November of 2020. He's just so good on his right foot. He's so skilled. And I I see that skill and I just want to see it more and more at a higher level. Maybe he's getting good reps in Austria right now. I don't know. But Ulianas is one, and Jonathan Amen is another. I loved watching Jonathan Amen play for Norgeland in Denmark. Just 22 years old still. He was capped by Dave Sarikin in 2018 and then by Berhalter in 2019, but has dealt with a bunch of injuries and really hasn't played much at all since 2019. I don't know exactly what the deal is with his club situation right now. Same with Ulianas in terms of what they're doing and where they might be able to go after this year. But I... I'm extremely high on both of those players, certainly less now than I was back when they were first breaking through in the national team picture. But I I think Heinemann, Yanez, and Eamon all have something left to give, certainly at the club level and maybe at the national team level. Yeah, I think those are uh, great shouts, Joe. And I would put Conrad De La Fuente sort of in the Ulianez category of a player that we've heard about since he was very young with the Barcelona Academy. Makes the move to Marseille. Seemed like it was going well, playing as a left wing back or uh, a wing back on various sides. But then Sampoli comes out and says he's not a professional or he's not interested in being a professional. That's not what you want to hear. I still think Conrad De La Fuente is a player who could be really important for the United States down the line, but maybe needs to sort things out in the present. Uh, to Guy's question, uh, when we're talking about Klinsman-era players, a lot of them have retired or are in more veteran uh, status, where I don't know if they're going to be brought in at this point. The only two that I could see who were in the Klinsman era, who were used by Klinsman, who might still come back, would be Bill Hamid, a bit of a reach, and then Ethan Horvath, who had the one cap uh, under Klinsman. But I think with the goalkeeper position being as like strong as it seems to be at times, but then also vulnerable at times with Turner's injuries, with Stefan occasionally just giving the ball away for funsies, uh, I think there could still be opportunities for different goalkeepers to come in and stake a claim or attempt to stake a claim. And I think Ethan Horvath is in that pool of potential players if something goes wrong or if Berhalter wants to experiment. Bill Hamid, less so. I just have a soft spot for Bill Hamid in my heart. So those are two names uh, that came to mind for me. Uh, Graham, did you have anything for this one? So while I while I made a joke about Heinemann, he was actually my, my genuine suggestion because when I watched him at Rangers, I, there was so much about him that I that I liked. He, he kind of took Rangers by storm a little bit in the second half of the season. He was he was on loan here, and um, I think if you look at his minutes and games he's had over the course of his career, he's only ever played 20 league games in a single campaign once, and that was in 2020 for Atlanta. So he's only 26, and if he could somehow in a single campaign get a full campaign of matches in there that I don't think it's it's unreasonable to suggest he he could push himself back into into the fray and then my my slight outsider I was looking through the Klinsman era and players that he gave caps to and as you as you say Taylor it's kind of slim pickings because the Klinsman era was quite mm-hmm. was a, like a while ago now um but I guess as an outsider maybe maybe Julian Green might be one you would say he's only, he's only 26 and he scores in the 2014 World Cup right he comes yes, does he, he does sc- yeah he does yeah that was I against uh, in the Belgium, Belgium. game, is that? Yeah. And um, he's playing first-team football in the Bundesliga for Gruther Fourth at the moment. They are bottom of the league, so maybe they're not going to stay there for much longer. Um, but as I say, 26 years old, maybe it's a little bit foolish to completely 
write him off as a possible USMNT player in the future? I, I think it's unlikely at this point. Certainly in the near future, he's going to be back. But he plays in a position behind the central striker where the US aren't exactly overflowing with options. And yes, that position doesn't really exist in Baralter's system right now. But in the future, maybe it will. And stranger things have happened for a 26-year-old to, to, to age gracefully and find form later in their career because he, he does come through fairly early and there was a lot of hype around him at Bayern Munich he plays in the Champions League for Bayern Munich 25 goals in 51 games for Bayern Munich's B team so there certainly was talent there and obviously his, his career has gone slightly awry but he is still playing in the Bundesliga right now I really like that that nomination Graham because I thought about him and was just like ah he's not going to be caught in by Berhalter he seems like he doesn't quite fit with the plan uh, so I'm not going to throw him in there but first of all, you're right. He's only 26. There's always that possibility. But also for reasons you mentioned about how he breaks into the U.S. and the the conspiracy theories, which I do believe that Klinsman promised him a spot in yep. the World Cup roster if he chose to play for the United States. Maybe it landed Donovan's expense. Uh, and so I sort of like the... I don't know the structure of that. Of He comes in as a youngster. He does score the goal, but there's some controversy around him. He doesn't hit the highs that maybe we had hoped he would. But then for him to get another chance maybe a couple years from now and become a, a, an elder statesman for a team, that's a nice symmetry to, to his national team career. So I think I like that for the narrative uh, purposes Maybe less so the footballing purposes, because yeah. as you said, I'm not quite sure how he fits. But yeah, and as like, we as we like all know, narrative, narrative is more important of than course. anything else. So of that's course. how I'd pick my squad. Uh, with that in mind, Graham, since we're talking about the Rangers curse, is there a Hibbs curse before we send Matthew Hawkins yes. there? Or will he be okay? Uh oh. Oh no, there's 100 percent Hibbs curse. <laughs> is there, Graham? Which <laughs> Scottish club is the least cursed? If you had to pick one, because I feel like that's a difficult question. If I asked you who's the most cursed, I think we're going to get a lot of nominations. Uh, the least cursed. I mean, you've got to go with, well, you would have said Celtic or Rangers until recently then Rangers suffered complete uh -huh. meltdown 10 years yeah. ago. So Celtic, I guess, is the okay. least cursed at the that moment. That probably makes sense. The team that wins the title all the time is probably not that cursed. Uh, next question, which does not involve curses, uh, comes from Tony uh, Carestia. What happened to Tyler Boyd? A great question. Tyler Boyd, now 27, was a, uh, is a New Zealand uh, American attacker, usually a winger, born in New Zealand, uh, to a New Zealand father, American mother, raised in the United States until he was 10, then went back to New Zealand. He had, I think, five or so caps for the New Zealand national team, then chose to represent the United States. He could still switch because I believe all those appearances were friendlies, and he was eligible to play for the U.S. before he was 18. He gets 10 appearances for the United States. He gets two goals, which I had completely forgotten, uh, but I had also sort of completely forgotten about Tyler Boyd because he really does fade from memory pretty quickly the question being why was that the case and i think joe there's there's two reasons for this one uh and they basically boil down to probably not that good or not good enough to be in the u.s national team when he comes through and then as the u.s evolves i think it's shown that the the winger options there uh there's plenty of depth so he would be pretty far behind a lot of the uh nominations uh but then also i think for him at club level he moves to Besiktas and that move does not work out he doesn't get many opportunities i think 25 total appearances for Besiktas over three and a half seasons something like that and he's still technically a Besiktas player he's on loan right now for Cheka Rizespor but i think club uncertainty Plus, maybe just not good enough to be one of the U.S. wingers, at least at present, is what happened to Tyler Boyd. That is my abbreviated answer. Joe, I turn to you to fill in some of those holes. You nailed it, Taylor. I'll do the national All team right. background here. So he was capped uh, a handful of times for the U.S. and was a part of the U.S.'s Gold Cup roster back in 2019. That's the Gold Cup where they lose to Mexico in the final. Mexico kind of kind of drive down the field and, and score that goal 1-0. They win that thing. The wingers on that Gold Cup roster were Christian Pulisic, who also played some centrally for the U.S. around that time. Christian Pulisic, Paul Areola, Jonathan Lewis, Jordan Morris, and Tyler Boyd. Now, nothing against any of those players because at least one, if not two or three of them, will likely be on the U.S.'s World Cup roster later this year. But those players are not Gio Reyna, Brendan Aronson, and Tim Weah, right, along with Christian Pulisic. The, my point there is... The U.S.'s winger depth and quality at the top end of the pool is so much higher now than even it was three years ago, right? Not even three years ago, thinking back to the summer of 2019. Soon after that Gold Cup, Gio Reyna came into the first-team picture. Brendan Aronson came into the first-team picture. Tim Way had already been in that picture briefly. He'd gotten his cap under Greg Baralter in 2020. 
uh, and then had caps earlier on under Dave Surikan and, and before that in that whole pre-Berhalter era. So all of a sudden now you're infusing Tim Weah and Gio Reyna and Brendan Aronson along with Christian Pulisic and you still have Paul Areola and Jordan Morris who I think are probably better players than Tyler Boyd. And suddenly on the national team side of things, he's not really in the picture. Then you add in Conrad De La Fuente in, into that group, and, and there's other young, young, exciting players that were pushing for caps and pushing for call-ups with what they were doing at club level. And Taylor, this is where I want to turn it back to you. Tyler Boyd's club situation was a lot more tumultuous than, than any of these other really top-end wingers that I've already mentioned. Yeah, exactly. Um, He moves to Besiktas in July of 2019. Uh, They had sacked their manager, Chanel Gunesh, at the end of the 2019 season. So new manager, Abdullah Avjia, comes in. We don't know if Tyler Boyd was a player that he had targeted or if Tyler Boyd had just sort of had a good enough season in the Turkish Super League that he was on Besiktas' radar. Uh, But he moves to Besiktas and then Avjia is sort of utilizes him, but then is sacked in January of 2020, only six months after appointment. So not a ton of time to develop that relationship. Uh, Sergen Yalchin uh, is brought in to see out the season. He lasts until December of 2021. Uh, then there's an interim manager. Now Valerian Ismail, formerly of West Brom, is their current manager. Uh, and I think that all of that uncertainty, when you're a new manager coming into a club like Besiktas, who we should note are a very big club, at least in Turkey, um, there's going to be a pressure to figure things out and hit the ground running. And I think a an international player who isn't at that like high, high standard or doesn't have that name recognition isn't going to sell a bunch of, of tickets, isn't going to get a ton of headlines, I think becomes surplus to requirement such that he literally is left out of the squad uh, because there are foreign player limits. I think he is a player that exceeds those. He's not in the 14, I think, is the number. Uh, and so that's when he starts getting loaned out, and now he's with Cheko Rizaspor, who are not a particularly large or esteemed club in Turkey. So I think we see him sort of going back to the level he was at. I think it was Ankara Gaju is where he was, not Ankara Spor, before moving to Besiktas, and that feels maybe like the appropriate level. And so ultimately, I think it's that Tyler Boyd found his level. It's just maybe not what we hoped it would be because he was one of those dual nationals who could play for the U.S., and now he's going to play for the U.S. Oh, no, he's playing in Turkey, and that's really exciting. And I think we kept, or I at least kept expecting there to be that moment when he would skin two or three defenders and then put in a perfect pass for a goal, and like, oh, that's what we've been waiting for. And instead, he would have little moments, but then other moments where there was a heavy touch or he dribbled out of bounds and it felt like, oh, right, maybe there's a reason why uh, New Zealand weren't so depressed to lose him. Uh, So that is about where things stand. You never know what will happen. He's still 27, so he could still uh, really catch fire with Riza Spore and end up making the World Cup squad. But that seems fairly unlikely. Anything else to be discussed when it comes to Tyler Boyd, gentlemen, or should we move on to our final question? Great hair. Really good hair, from what I remember. <laughs> well said, Joe. Joe, good stuff. I'm going to come back to you for this one. From Clay W., <laughs> if the U.S. men's national team played all of its players' clubs, which clubs would likely win in a single match? You can assume the following, says Clay. Neutral venue, both squads are 100% healthy, and the U.S. men's national team players can play on both sides. Uh, we're going to clone them for purposes of this experiment. Okay. Okay, that's good to know, because that was my first question when reading through this. Before I got to the end, what happens? Does, does Tyler Adams only play for one side? How does that change things? But no, this is, this is pretty straightforward. If it's a single match, it's a total crapshoot with a lot of clubs, because soccer is kind of random in that way. That's why international tournaments with one-off knockout competitions are so insane and are not always the best indicator of a team's relative quality. So I'm going to set that aside, though, because this is a fun thought exercise. I'm going to just assume in my head that it's a best of three series. That just comforts me in some way, and and you guys are just going to have to live with that. I have six teams that I think, six club teams that would beat the U.S. for sure that are associated with U.S. men's national team players. Graham, I want you to to check me as I go through this list. I'm going to list off my six, and then I want to know if you have any different ones that you think are definitely in that list, and then I have some others that I think maybe could on a good day. Manchester City with Zach Steffen. That's an obvious one. FC Barcelona with Sergino Dest. RB Leipzig with Tyler Adams. Juventus with Weston McKinney. Borussia Dortmund with Gio Reyna. And Chelsea with Christian Pulisic. Graham, checks out? Doesn't check out? What you got? 
So those are those are the six that I had that would definitely beat the USMNT. Okay. I also had a, uh, some competitive teams as well that would give them a good game. So I had Valencia with Musa, I had Lille with Tim Weah, and I had Red Bull Salzburg with Brendan Aronson. I think those they would be competitive matches with, with the the US. I totally agree. Salzburg was the one I had next, sort of in a tier all on its own. That team made a a real dent in the Champions League after that first leg against Bayern where they were probably not the better team in that game, but they make it out of the group and they do end up facing off against Bayern, which is pretty huge for them. They clearly have talent there. That's Brendan Aronson's team. Valencia with Musa is one I certainly had, Graham. And then I had a few of those Bundesliga mid-table teams, Hoffenheim with Chris Richards, Wolfsburg with John Brooks, if we can still count him, and Gladbach with Joe Scally. I think those teams would lose to the U.S. along with Valencia in maybe a best-of-three series, but I'm not 100% confident in the U.S. I think those teams would give the U.S. men's national team a game. Taylor, where do you stand on this? Do you do you agree with what we've got so far? Do you have others that you think could maybe take down the U.S.? Um, I think... I agree with everything you all have said. I'm a little bit more like back and forth on some other teams, mostly because I think ultimately like one condition there would have to be to really round this out from clay would be that it's, it's not just that everyone's healthy. It's that like both teams have had the exact same amount of time to prepare from scratch Um. almost because like looking at Salzburg for a moment, that is a team that drills and drills and drills to play a certain way, but they have the time because they're a club to do that so that they can have different looks and have different permutations, but everybody has a really good understanding of what's being asked of them. Contrast that with the U.S. under Burhalter, where there's been talk about how his system is too complicated or players don't know what's being asked of them in any given moment on occasion. And I wonder if a team that's just playing a very unified style of soccer, a very identified, codified style of soccer, if that would end up causing the U.S. problems. And I think it would. So I think there's smaller teams like, say, a Salzburg who could cause the U.S. problems just because they've got that sort of background and that unified approach. I'm not sure who else would be on that list. And then you could find maybe like... Uh, cheat answers because like there's uh, Chituro Odunze, the 19-year-old goalkeeper who has never played for the United States, is eligible to do so, but he is on the books at Leicester. Like I think Leicester would beat the U.S., but it's not also one that maybe jumps to mind right away the way, say, Dortmund or Chelsea do. Sure. Yeah, I, I think I mean, Leicester, <laughs> Leicester would give the U.S. a game. I think the U.S. could take that. Taylor, your really? point about, about prep time is a really good one because I think – if RB Salzburg has time to do their thing and really lead up to this game, they probably are going to beat the U.S. Some of these other teams, I think the U.S. could do damage against even with the same cadence, even with the club teams keeping their cadence and the national teams keeping theirs. It wouldn't be easy, but I think the U.S. could take down those those mid-table Bundesliga teams. I think they might be able to take down Valencia and Lille. It starts to get a little easier after that, right? With Armenia Bielefeld, with George Bello and Greta Firth, with Julian Green. I think the U.S. could take any MLS team. So that takes out Atlanta with Miles Robinson, Nashville, Walker Zimmerman, New England for now with Matt Turner. Arsenal is probably another team that goes in that initial group along. Or maybe they're in the Salzburg tier. I'll put them in that tier two level. But all the MLS teams, LAFC, Dallas, Red Bulls, Seattle, Miami, those all have USMNT players on them. I think the U.S. men's national team would win pretty handily maybe that's a bit of a stretch for some of those but I think they would beat Rangers with James Sands and Fulham with Jedi Robinson Nottingham Forest with Ethan Horvath and then maybe the more obscure ones as well with Young Boys and Jordan Pifak Heracles with Luca De La Torre and Twa with EPB I kind of just went through the most recent World Cup qualifying roster list I think it really is just that top tier of teams the, the six for sure that Graham and I talked about and maybe a Salzburg and, and a mid-table La Liga team or a Bundesliga team Leicester, if we're, if we're counting that, that's kind of in that next tier or two underneath that top six. I, I kind of have a theory that club teams are actually a lot better than international teams just because of, of the amount of time that they they, uh, they have together. So I I genuinely don't know, Joe, whether I agree or disagree, and we'll, pro- we'll never find out. That's the beauty of this question. Like, when you say Rangers, on an individual talent basis, there's absolutely no doubt the US has better players than Rangers. But Rangers are in the in the semi-finals of a, of the Europa League this season. Like they are a they are a decent unit, and so as an experiment, I would like to do that like FIFA sort of thing where you play an international team against a club team and kind of just see what happens. But I don't think that's ever going to happen. So this is forever going to be a hypothetical. Graham, let's take it the other way then for a moment. 
what is the international team that you think would struggle least in this type of situation? Like Brazil, because they're just Brazil and so good and expect to be dominant regardless of their opponent. Do you think they would struggle if they had to play some of the clubs that their players play for? Um, I'm not sure about Brazil. I'm trying to think. I'm trying to think what you would want in an international team. You would want an international team that's as close to a club setup as possible. So I'm thinking Italy in the Euros. Qatar. They seem to be very co- cohesive. Qatar. Qatar. <laughs> <laughs> they seem to be very cohesive, and Mancini had had them drilled very well, much beyond what you would expect from an international team. So while Italy failed to qu- follow that up by failing to qualify for the, the 2022 World Cup. If we go back to the Euros, maybe that Italy team would, would stand a good chance. I just think a lot of international teams, most international teams, to be honest, are just a, a sum of their parts, whereas club, the best club teams are more than the sum of their parts. And that's not really a criticism of the international teams or the coaches. It's just down to the lack of time that they get in, in preparation and on the training pitch with, with those players and, and uh, forging those teams. So my theory is that club you would have you would go lower in terms of individual quality at club level to find a match for an international team that than you would expect and but as i say we're not, we're never going to find out whether that theory is is true or not uh gentlemen i have loved this conversation immensely but i think on that note we've talked plenty about the us about potential us players about potential us opponents at club level uh loved this conversation joe lowry thank you so much uh for being part of it Thank you, Taylor. <laughs> and Graham, uh, thank you as well, my friend. Thank you, Taylor Rockwell. Uh, listeners, thank you all so much for joining us, sticking with us. This was only just over an hour. That That's on the shorter side for the three of us. Yeah. Uh, appreciate you all listening. We will talk to you again many more times this week. But for now, thanks so much. Talk to you soon.